Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. So this is um, a bit delayed. We took a little bit of a break. Apologies there. But it will be worth it. We've been cooking up some cool things out of Thwart, and we're excited uh, to be sharing them and, and publishing them quite shortly. But today, Will and I are back for an episode of Phrenesis discussing Charles Taylor's essay, The Politics of Recognition which is the both sort of uh, primary and introductory essay uh, for a volume by the same name, The Politics of Recognition. This was something Will again chose. He, he's got a strong interest in, in Charles Taylor. And could you maybe give us some background on Taylor, Will, and, and sort of sketch why you think he's such a fascinating figure? Yeah, so he's uh, he's still alive. He's emeritus at McGill now and has been for uh, quite some time. Uh, so Taylor is uh, French-Canadian, uh, so he grew up in Quebec, uh, and I think we'll discuss, he discusses in this essay, and I think we'll use as an example, uh, how the, the experience of the Quebecois in primarily, uh, you know, Anglican, English-speaking Canada uh, has colored especially how he thinks about politics. Uh, and so he did um, his undergrad at McGill and then went to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship and studied with Isaiah Berlin. Um, and then I don't remember if he went back to McGill and then back to Oxford, but but regardless, he uh, was the Chichely Professor of Political and Social Theory at Oxford for a couple decades. Um, which is you know, really their most prestigious chair in um, you know, political and social philosophy. Uh, Jerry Cohen, the uh, famous analytic Marxist philosopher, uh, held it before him. Um, and he's since moved back to Canada, but uh, also has been um, very politically active. Um, uh, he um, tailored a Canadian government chaired a Canadian government commission on uh, minority rights uh, in Canada um, and um, you know so, so someone who who puts into action a, a lot of what he writes about um, and his work spans an incredible range uh, you know so he works on uh, philosophy of language uh, and hermeneutics he works on the philosophy of mind he works on the history of philosophy uh he works on social philosophy so just by the sheer breadth of what he does um you know is, is impressive and its level of integration is impressive uh how each informs different parts uh and then you know finally something i'm interested uh something that interests me about him he's um you know a devout and practicing catholic uh, which undoubtedly colors his writing, um, but not in a way that 
a lot of prominent Catholic thinkers now or recently have thought about things of, uh, you know, lamenting what modernity has wrought, um, you know, pining for a return to something like the Middle Ages. Um, on the contrary, he sees modernity as, you know, opening up a full range of, um, you know, human possibilities in a way that, you know, can lead to a more decent politics, uh, in a way that can be, you know, lead people to living better lives. And in a way, I think that he sees as, um, you know, achieving parts of, you know, the Christian vision better than they did before, um, to, at, at the expense of some other things, to be sure. And he, you know, sure to acknowledge um, the trade-offs. But, but he, you know, he's not someone that says, oh, if only I could return to Louis IV's France, uh, then, you know, you know, then everyone would believe and things would be better um you know i think i think he has an idea that um you know we can live out human possibilities better more fully um and i think in a more christian way uh you know with some of the intellectual changes changes in the ways that we think about ourselves uh that that you know the modern era and the reaction to the modern era have kind of led us to. Yeah, I reading through this, there is very much one gets a sense of hope that actual progress in society is possible, rather than uh, feels the need for for reaction. I think you're absolutely right about that, and and it it's unique. I. I think I think to start this off, I'd like to read the first paragraph, which is rather rather brief, but a good introduction. Taylor writes, a number of strands in contemporary politics turn on the need, sometimes the demand, for recognition. The need, it can be argued, is one of the driving forces behind nationalist movements and politics. And the demand comes to the fore in a number of ways in today's politics, on behalf of minority or subaltern groups, in some forms of feminism, and what is today called the politics of multiculturalism. So this is, from the get-go, certainly an area that, that is fraught with controversy, particularly, I, I think, in, in Catholic thought at the moment. Uh, and, and Taylor approaches it in a unique way. What, what, what does he mean by recognition? What is this demand for recognition? Right. So later, later on, in the piece, which I think makes sense to talk about at the beginning, uh, he talks about human identity as dialogical instead of monological. So we don't just construct our identity and who we end up becoming, how we think about ourselves in a vacuum. It's always in conversation with uh, who uh, he borrows the term from someone, but significant others. Um, you know, people who are important to us, they shape, they shape our identity and we, you know, we form it in dialogue with them. Sometimes he says in reaction to them, uh, but, but, but there's always an exchange going and, and, that, and that's partly how we think about ourselves, uh, which means that the way that people see us can affect how we see ourselves. Um, this is, I mentioned, uh, you know, Taylor's basically firmly ensconced himself in the hermeneutic tradition. 
um, you know, the, the idea that uh, we interpret ourselves through information we receive, you know, about ourselves in the world. And part of the way people see us is information that we receive about ourselves. And, you know, so we, we adjust our identities, we reinterpret ourselves along those lines. Uh, and so in a sense, we need our identity affirmed by other people uh, for it to really be an identity. There's always a, a, a level of doubt about it unless other people uh, you know, recognize that as being me. And he actually says a few paragraphs below that it's actually a human need. Uh, you know, the, that recognition is, is a human need. And one of the things he thinks that is unique to the modern world is that the creations, the conditions obtain where that need cannot be met. Um, and so what you have is people are basically unrecognized by, you know, their uh, fellow countrymen and women, uh, by people intimate relationships with them, uh, or they, they receive a distorted, uh, caricatured, stereotyped vision of themselves from these people, and it does real harm to them. It's a real form of oppression. And one thing he mentions um, uh, persists in uh, some feminist literature and in uh, literature, especially about, um, he talks about Frantz Fanon's uh, book, which is his, uh, The Black Experience in French Algeria, uh, but also the experience of, um, of black Americans, um, uh, is that for a very long time and probably to, probably to some extent now, uh, you know, received a uh, gross caricatured stereotype image of themselves back from the majority population. Um, and some of the arguments that some of these you know, feminist thinkers especially made was even after women's liberation, the ways that this kind of more subtle form of oppression acted on them prevented them from you know, fully realizing that liberation. Uh, and he thinks that's a real problem. I, I really loved uh, what he wrote about that specifically. Sorry, I'm going to quote again. He, he writes that identity is partly shaped by recognition or its absence, often by the misrecognition of others. And so a person or a group People can suffer real damage, real distortion, if the people or society around them mirror back to them confining or demeaning or contemptible picture of themselves. Non-recognition or misrecognition can inflict harm, can be a form of oppression, imprisoning someone in a false, distorted, and reduced mode of being. Skipping a few lines, he writes, Thus, they have internalized a picture of their own inferiority, so that even when some of the objective obstacles to their advancement fall away, they may be incapable of taking advantage of the new opportunities. And beyond this, they're condemned to suffer the pain of low self-esteem. And I... This seems like a much... This is a, a better developed and I think more concrete description of it, the right likes to mock uh, very often things like microaggressions or, or, or other 
slights that that something might might be perceived not real taylor is very very direct here that the way the way other people see you changes and can uh i'm sorry i'm i'm but right he thinks he thinks it's a he, he thinks it's an unavoidable problem given how things are today so you can you know you can laugh at it ha ha what i said to you you know couldn't have you know stung or 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 anything like that and i think i think part of it is it, it's normally a, a repeatedly fed to you picture of yourself um but that yeah but that you know whether you like it or not this is a real a, a real problem um you know a real feature of the modern identity and of modern politics um and and that's right i think that's one way that this can get teased out is um you know into like what we're calling microaggressions now um but 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 i I think we'll discuss later there's different ways to tease this out and you have to uh you know apply a certain amount of um you know judgment to and i think part of what he thinks is you know the job of people doing governing now uh is to pull um you know apply judgments to who and what gets recognized and how and i i think yeah taylor does a phenomenal job writing throughout this yet again i want to want to read something he he writes Misrecognition shows not just a lack of due respect. It can inflict a grievous wound, saddling its victims with a crippling self-hatred. Due recognition is not just a courtesy we owe people. It is a vital human need. And so right after this, Taylor starts to transition and works on creating a genealogy or, or, or providing sort of a history of how this came to be that we perceive each other this way, that we require recognition, where this comes from. And uh, the first point he brings up is Hegel with his dialectic of master and slave. And while this is important and is revisited later, Taylor doesn't think that this is the inception point of inequalities of this sort. And he discusses honor in sort of the sense of antiquity, that there there are natural inequalities that people are fighting for. And some some people uh, have a greater sense of honor in terms of have accomplished more or have conquered more. And then coming from this, that the, that in this world of honor is fundamentally different from ours insofar as these inequalities are are considered if not natural um normative it's it's i think he does i think he does think they're not they're natural uh so the first he, he identifies two changes um that bring about the problem of recognition you're right he sees hegel is the most mature explication of it uh 
but that but there's a lot that leads up to it you know and, and Hegel is interpreting the world that he sees and and um and so it has to be a world in which recognition is a problem in which it's something that you know Hegel sees as a need to be satisfied um and and you're right the the first the the, the first thing he says the first change that happened are social hierarchies fell apart um, and these were primarily honor societies and you're right uh, the social hierarchy was considered natural it was given cosmological justification um, and so it's not that people there didn't need to be recognized um, it's that they weren't pining or you know clawing their way to that, their identity kind of it was just fixed the universe has given it to you and you are a serf um, and you know, being a serf might be unpleasant. Uh, being, you know, you, you're hungry a lot and you have, you know, you're, you know, beholden to someone else. Uh, but, but at the same time, you don't have an identity crisis about being, about being a serf. And when the social order breaks down, you know, when societies become more democratic uh, and he thinks dignity replaces honor, um, you know, in these societies, then people need a new way to be recognized. Um, and so equal recognition becomes something that's essential to democratic societies. I want to slightly push back against the term um, social order breaks breaks down. Uh, and so far as for Taylor, that in this, that doesn't seem to, to be a, a bad thing leaving the ancient world and ancient ways of doing things isn't a, a degeneration sure, sure, sure. the it's just a transition right. and, and we have adopted this new modern means of thinking that no longer considers these honor-based inequalities natural or necessary and what we've adopted instead is a notion of dignity uh, a sense of egalitarianism a, a universal sense of honor that everyone is on a somewhat level playing field or has can achieve similar things but the dignity of them as an individual is what's foremost not not their right. status and and i i right and right by you're you're right by i don't mean order broke down as in we had anarchy but that uh, I mean, order as in hierarchy, you know, the really structured medieval hierarchy. And that's right. There was a, you know, not just, you know, we changed to egalitarian thinking, but that there was a very strong reaction against the honor ethic um, from Hobbes, from Rousseau, uh, you know, who thought it was, you know, basically extremely dangerous for a well-functioning society, or especially a, a well-functioning, increasingly, increasingly participatory and democratic society. Um, for Rousseau, not not so much for Hobbes, but but he still thought it was it, it was dangerous, um, and but you know these are all you know thinkers um, who are you know teasing out the idea that you know partially arises f um, from the you know the Reformation, the priesthood of all believers, that you know everyone is equal in some way or another um you know that there's the great chain of being breaks down um and you know everyone is reduced to who they are in hobbes state of nature or something that's it, right 
And so that's the first change he, he notices. And um, a wonderful signifier of this that he discusses is conventions of how we address one another. In, in honor society, in a more hierarchically um, developed society, you have lord, lady, uh, baron, count, liege, all of these different terms that describe whether someone is above, equal, or below you, and how you ought to address them. And also with the attachment of a family name, given, giving a sort of sense of legacy to these. Whereas today, we, we generally refer uh, to people by Mr. or Mrs. or Miss, things that, that sort of collapse individuals in, to individuals rather than their role or their title or position in society. And indeed, even more, we're, we've collapsed those distinctions. Misses and Miss aren't, aren't particularly... Um, you know, aren't, aren't distinctions that, that are commonly made so more. And truly, I pro- probably wasn't your case uh, at Duke, but like at, at my undergrad, I mean, e- even pro- many professors would have us call them by their first names. And more and more family names are starting to recede. And so very much we're cutting off the sense of legacy or hierarchy to just the individual and who they are as their own person and in the more egalitarian revolutions uh you know everyone um you know uh everyone in the uh you know so I, you know, after the french revolution established the french republic everyone calls each other citizen um or comrade in the soviet union um which is you know all even you know first names are, are leveled um, so the, yeah, this is a this is a perfect signifier of that, and these are those are some of the uh, you know more moderate ways to tease out that logic, I guess. And total total aside, I I've always found it interesting that uh, many religious communities in, in different faith traditions have um, converts or or people who who join the clerical state adopt uh, new names. Uh, new names that are often shared in common. Um, the naming convention really, really has a lot with identity. And, and maybe that, that's reflecting back the way others recognize you as well as self Right. Well, um, right. If, if they, uh, you know, if they refuse to acknowledge your new name or something, then, then that has an effect on you. Um, I mean that's a that's a, a way of thinking about this. Um, so, so the so the first that changes this, uh, you know, breakdown of social hierarchy, and replacement with a more egalitarian politics, or at least the idea that politics should be more egalitarian. And the second is um, much, much more complicated. Takes a much more long time, a much longer time. Um, to materialize and mature, uh, but it's a new understanding of individual identity, uh, which um, he calls the ideal of authenticity. Um, authenticity is Heidegger's word. Uh, he wrote a, or Taylor wrote a book called The Ethics of Authenticity, but um, in his 
book, Sources of the Self, he traces this um, all the way from Augustine uh, to, you know, basically how we think about ourselves today. And so if we start from the end, you know, the way you and I think about ourselves are as people with, he uses the term, inner depths. Um, you know, there's a sense of being in touch with yourself, um, you know, with kind of plumbing your own mind for a sense of identity, even for a sense of right and wrong, um, that, that, you know, he thinks is a, a necessary part of the modern condition. Um, and, and, and so part of this is, um, you know, he thinks Augustine is the first person to come up with this idea. He, um, Augustine has an ontological argument and part, some of the premises in the argument, um, are really about reaching inward basically. Um, which he sees as a precursor to, uh, Descartes gives a similar argument. Um, but really the first people, uh, to formulate this are, um, Scottish thinkers who are reacting against Locke. And Locke has a, a, a command theory of law and morality where good and bad is just a matter of calculation about the external reward or punishment we receive for doing an action. Uh, and this didn't resonate real well with Hutchison, especially uh, his teacher Shaftesbury, um, influenced by the Cambridge Platonists, but Hutchison especially, this doesn't resonate well with him. Uh, and so for, for Hutchison, um, this idea is, you know, morality is an external, um, you know, to us. It's something we, we achieve and, uh, you know, to discover what we have to do by reaching inward, um, by being in touch with our moral sentiments. Um, and so this is the first time that feelings, inwardness, are really given moral value. Um, and Taylor thinks this is really grasped up by Rousseau, um, who, you know, most of his thought is about having to get in touch with our inner nature. Um, but so not just that our inner nature um, has moral significance, but that uh, once you get to the romantics and Herder especially, each of us has a something unique inside of us um so there's a he says there's a unique way of being human and um and and so you know what you have then coming out of that 19th and 20th centuries are uh, where people with inner depths um but you know each of us have a uh, different but what we discover down there is different for each person um and part of being human is, uh, you know, discovering and living that out. Now, I think there are plenty of people who would want to push back on that, but I think what Taylor would say is one way or another, you're shaped by this and this is how you think about yourself. And so that's the condition that people find themselves in, um, grasping for these unique identities that, that they need recognition for. Yeah. It and I, I want to sort of re, rephrase that and sort of expand. Will, you had spoken earlier about 
whether we monologically or dialogically understand ourselves. And so part of the sense of identity is necessarily such that it it's a rejection of socially derived identification. You're rejecting people evaluating you based on your lineage, evaluating you based on your class, evaluating you based on anything that an honor society would. And instead, it's finding this internal, self-generated concept of identity. But Taylor finds a difficulty with this insofar as we don't approach our life this way. We, we aren't monologic. We don't learn just from ourselves and of ourselves. We learn in conversation with one another. And, and he really stresses the importance of language and language in a broad sense uh, of, of the words we speak to one another, what people tell us, what we tell them, but also all of our various human experiences, the uh, ways we interact with our parents, uh, loving feelings or or feelings of anger, all these different things. Experiencing them educates us and changes who we are. And, and so this is, this causes an odd, odd tension, sort, sort of akin to the, the um, nature versus nurture tension we, we see pop up in popular discourse. It's both... This thing that is internally developed and is yours all alone, your personal identity that others can influence, can only come about through your environment, through through the nature that's constantly influencing you, uh, the, the nurturing that's constantly influencing you. And, and I, I, I was struggling with, with, with this. Right. Bit. Well, I mean, this is this is why you know, Taylor is one of the arch communitarians. Um, you know, he's he's among the group of people, uh, you know, responding to Rawls and Dworkin and Nozick and, you know, the arch liberals who really think of I or I either ignore identity and how it's formed or think of it in the way that Taylor rejects. Um, and Taylor says, even, uh, you know, someone who wants to eliminate all dependence on other people, so a hermit, say, uh, you know, goes out into the desert, um, there's still, you know, to really to commune with God, uh, but that's still a dialogical relationship or, you know, the, the solitary artist uh, who wants to pull himself from human society is still basically conversing with an imagined future audience for his work. Um, and and that well, in, those are inescapably, you know, even these things are inescapably dialogical. Further than that, they're necessarily dialogic. The, anyone seeking to escape society is in a relationship with society. It's a rejection of it, a rejection that requires familiarity or, or knowledge of society, and you're taking a stance towards it. You you can't be, you can't be truly a social. 
that just it, it it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't make sense to have an identity, a way of being labeled or viewed or understood that isn't observed by. And this someone. is interestingly, um, I didn't actually think about this while I was reading it, uh, but this is kind of how Taylor thinks about atheism. Um, in uh, he talks about this in a secular age, he. You know, Contemporary, enlightened, rationalist atheism can only conceive of itself in relation to an unenlightened Christian past. That, uh, you know, these, you know, really optimistic enlightenment philosophies that, you know, thought that you'd eventually have a perfectly rational religionless state um, didn't understand that, especially the way atheism has come to, to be, uh, it can't. You can't think of yourself as an atheist except in relation to believers. And so that belief will always persist, even in this form, and that people will continue to get pulled back into it. Um, so, you know, this is just a, a way it's set up. So it's, um, you know, even even that we're kind of we're kind of in a, a, you know, some of us in a dialogical relationship with the past, not just the future. Um and this is more Heidegger, probably, who was also very influential on him. But, um, but that we're not just in dialogue with the people around us, um, but especially when we think about like the thick components of our identity. So something like whether we're believers or atheists or something like that is also formed in dialogue with at least how we think of the past and also partially how we think of the future. Am I an activist? Yes. Well, that's partially my identity is being formed by future generations or something like that um so it's and and you know he this is how human identities form this is how human relationships are constituted he thinks and i apologize if you mentioned this already i don't want to um get too veered off course with this but uh taylor also briefly mentions and references Herder again in this how these same elements are at play with broader cultural identities with uh, the sense of a volk or a people uh, and nationalism that much the same a, a, a nation's identity is generated in this dialogic manner but has a strange need for recognition and aversion to misrecognition that I think it'd be interesting to, to revisit this maybe maybe yeah uh, write about it for, for the site yeah. I yeah he says that you can see the roots of modern nationalism in its most you know terrible and most benign forms or something uh, so you know uh, you know the idea kind of suffuses liberatory movements in Africa and South America but you know, also clearly the conception of a Volk uh, is an integral part of Nazism. Um, so, uh, but, you know, which is, again, something that's inescapable, is, is something that's modern and could not have arisen in pre-modernity. Because it's, it's, it's an extremely modern way of thinking about ourselves. And maybe, maybe drawing this out to, to the levels of nations helps us understand the individual as well 
in in how this is can can be both liberating and and oppressive uh the examples of um post-colonial states like algeria um coming into their own sense of identity uh that is more independently generated than what was projected and forced onto them uh, by by France. All, all these post-colonial states trying to authentically be themselves and be what is appropriate for themselves in line with uh, culture and tradition and not forced to be other than who they are. But it this sense of identity also can encourage more more malicious elements or factors and, and that's particularly identifying yourself in distinction uh to, or to worse others. in superiority toward um right and yeah. and this this is something he gets this is important for later in the piece when he talks about multiculturalism especially um in that group identities are real things and that there are certain uh group goods that are valid ends to pursue um but before that um he as a as a way of explaining just why exactly that's a problem um he uh uh taylor wants to tease out what the politics of equal recognition mean um you know which is where the two changes we talked about earlier lead to um, and how they end up meaning something kind of contradictory. Uh, yeah. So one, there's, it basically means two things. When the first leads into the second, the first thing is that there's an equalization um, of rights and entitlements, at least as justification for public policies. Um, so that doesn't that it doesn't mean that that's always how it played out. He gives the example of uh, uh, even Jim Crow governments justified policies like this um go ahead. to uh he he discusses how uh those trying to restrict uh voting rights in, in jim crow governments use a, a, a universal notion like that of a test or a poll tax as a way to be repressive so uh even those who and, and elsewhere even the most ardent reactionaries feel some sort of sense in which their appeal has to be made to a sense of equality and of everyone having ha- having a potential. Right. When you're trying to take away, sorry. No, yeah, that's I I, I think that's right. Um, it, and it's um, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's interesting how, uh, like you said, even you know basically non-democratic movements still rely or you know philosophies now still kind of rely on something like this um but there's a there's a a a contradictory or that in practice becomes contradictory impulse that arises from this which is that you know if we want to equalize everybody's rights of entitlement um and you know basically we respect everyone equally that means that we have to respect everyone equally in their difference 
Um, and th this is what you get from Rousseau and Herder, which is that, you know, everyone has a different way, basically, of being human. Um, and so then when you talk about equal recognition, you're talking about giving equal recognition to everyone differently. And this seems contradictory. And, you know, he talks about how some of the moves to do this say something like, you know, in practice, this become gets played out in something like um, affirmative action uh, is kind of what the second impulse gives a rise to, which, um, you know, really runs afoul of the first one, uh, you know, which is that everyone, regardless of anything, gets treated differently. Um, you know, and he thinks that has a kind of homogenizing effect on people and can be harmful to their identities. So whereas the uh, politics of equal recognition tries to all ends to avoid distinctions between first class and second class citizens, Taylor writes of the politics of difference. The politics of difference grows organically out of the politics of universal dignity through one of those shifts with which we are long familiar, where a new understanding of the human social condition imparts a radically new meaning to an old principle. Just as a view of human beings as conditioned by their socioeconomic plight changed the understanding of second-class citizenship, so this category can include, for example, people in inherited poverty traps, so here the understanding of identity is formed in the interchange, and is possibly so malformed, introduces a new form of second-class status into our purview. In following policies, then, and, and I, I, tell me if I'm starting to project onto this, um, but policies are, are reoriented to what are newly acknowledged to be second-class citizens for the sake of making them first-class citizens but really distorts the formula in there and there there is a certain sense then the hierarchy gets all all mixed up the bottom is treated on the top and the top it it's messy it could it could be like that it could be like that and i think that's the problem he wants to avoid and this is where he gets at assigning different cultural privileges to different groups or uh, he doesn't suggest it in this i don't think but you know, some people who have run with this piece this also this piece like uh kind of ignited the study of multiculturalism and contemporary political theory um you know promoted giving a certain amount of sovereignty or autonomy to tightly knit cultural groups um which is the case uh, with indigenous nations, say, um, but but I I think what also what he wants to say is um, by you know correcting this new understanding of second and first class citizenship by what what creates second class citizenship. Um, you know, we run afoul of this intuition we have of what the first principle is, which is just that everyone gets treated neutrally no matter what. Um, you know, which I, I think is a sense of fairness we have. Um, but, you know, but at, at the same time, we realize that this is also a problem. Let me try 
take another stab at it and, and introduce or, or highlight another difficulty is that in the politics of of dignity everyone every individual is striving for a sense of authenticity we are trying to be as um, authentic to our own identities as possible we're concerned about our identities and that is sort of what what's fundamental myself as a person contra everything else but politics of equal difference politics of dignity require a sort of assimilation a, a sort of neutralizing of making my identity not distinct but equal to every other identity and in so doing my identity loses its distinctiveness it loses its value as an identity and i think uh, your earlier example of the soviet union is right here what happens isn't so much an equalization of the fullness of each individual person it is a flattening of everyone into sort of a a nondescript uh comrade a a a an entity without really an essence to them. And that's a a fear here that throws a giant wrench in this. Assimilation is absolutely opposed to authenticity. Right, and he thinks that, uh, you know, contemporary Western liberalism basically does this in a sense. Uh, that that it is homogenizing, especially of minority cultures, which have a claim to their own survival, which people value, which are constitutive parts of their identities. Uh, that that Western liberalism will tend to erode, which is also part of a you know a colonial critique of the west um where you uh you know even if you showed up and just you know set down a british government you know somewhere in the non-western world um that was facially neutral you end up you know basically steamrolling something that is really valuable to people and which they want to survive and to persist throughout future generations um and right so so I think one of the things he wants us to be attuned to here is ways in which, you know, which we kind of understand in terms of like economics, say, um, facially neutral politics can produce perverse outcomes, basically, or, or uh, you know, unjust outcomes and here outcomes that, um, you know, end up eroding people's sense of identity. And another example of this, and maybe to extend it a little further, Taylor recounts the tale of uh, Saul Bellow saying something along the lines of, when the Zulus produce a Tolstoy, we will read him. And Taylor traces sort of two concerns with this. The first being that it is a, it's an a insensitive comment. It's uh, rude is, is insufficient. It, it's... Um, 
Right. It's entirely I, dismissive of the entire Zulu culture. There, yeah. Um, I can't. Rude is insufficient. I can't think of the the right word. But there's a way in which this sentence is is just a cruel statement. Meanwhile, the other concern people raise rose uh, over it was that Bello is denying a sense of human equality. Uh, and for Taylor, this seems like it was a more pressing concern. Not that Bello was rude or insensitive. It was that he he implied the Zulus weren't capable of producing a Tolstoy, weren't capable of producing such literature. And Taylor doesn't make this explicit on the page, but to me it, it seems, and I, I think he's pointing to, the problem actually being separate still. And that, that that's the wrong question to ask whether the Zulus are capable of producing a Tolstoy. That, that's utterly irrelevant. That That's a, uh, in so many ways, uh, in this, the con- Tolstoy's uh, Russian context is a necessary element of who he is in his literature. The more important question would be what innovation, what meaningful cultural product or tradition or anything is indigenous to Zulu culture. And so to ask, to, to deny the principle uh, of equality in Bellow's comment is to not acknowledge the identity, the, the actual Zulu identity and the value that there is without the inherent dignity of Zulu culture, irrespective of whether uh, Tolstoy came from them or Russia. Right, right. This is, this is moving into, you know, Taylor kind of giving an ethical account of, so we live in a multicultural world. And so he defines, he defines multiculturalism pretty restrictively. He says more than one cultural community that wants to survive within a given area, presumably sharing a common government. And you have to figure out how to adjudicate between the cultural claims and the individual claims people have to make and the cultural claims people make or cultures, you know, make in competition with one another, basically, um, you know, but that, but, the, you know, but the, there's also a certain ethics of approaching, you know, especially he thinks non-Western um, cultures. Um, and the, and so then the, I think we could say there's a third problem with uh, Bellow's comment here, which is that we assume that the standards by which we think Tolstoy are great are the standards by which we should judge any cultural artifact of the Zulus. And he thinks that's wrong and not the right way um, to approach uh, to approach this. And so, you know, he thinks that, um, you know, we are basically North Atlantic, he says, people, um, you know, f- formed basically, um, you know, in... Uh, by a history and with within a culture that is limited like all of them are and so you know given that and given that especially we are going to come in contact within the north atlantic world with 
people from without the North Atlantic world who are going to make, you know, cultural, basically claims for their culture to be recognized as having value, then, you know, what is the ethical way to approach that um, without being either insufferably patronizing um, or, you know, insufferably cruel or dismissive? Um, you know, how can you do that while learning something, basically? Um, and, uh, you know, you know, taking a posture that shows that you find value um, or that you're open to finding value, you know, from another culture. I guess continuing with that train of thought of how do we, how do we deal with other cultures? How do we, you know, how do we approach them, um, uh, you know, with respect, basically? And this is not really a political question. Like I said, it's an ethical question taylor thinks we approach it with an openness this is kind of um a multicultural reading of godimer um which is you know how um godimer thinks that by when we we recognize the historicity of our own being we're historically formed creatures um that you know that should make us open to um not thinking we know everything to reading things from the past and being prepared to find truth in them. Um, and Taylor, uh, imports this, you know, not just to the past, but between other cultures, basically. Um, and he, you know, he talks about this, um, in the context of reforming the canon, the, um, you know, the canon of Western literature where, um, you know, and this was written 20 years ago, so it was happening then, you know, the, the complaint is that it, what you read in a standard English literature program or a standard literature program um, are, is basically all European literature written by men. Um, and so, um, you know, what he says, and in one sense, this is a recognition problem. Um, that if you're not a European man, that um, you know, part of what's being communicated by that is that people like you aren't capable of producing great literature, which is clearly not the case um, and is insulting. Um, but he says we shouldn't make the other mistake then of A, just saying, okay, okay, you know, we'll throw it in because you asked for it. Um, there's value in this because he says just saying that just you know making it a judgment uh you know based on solidarity or something which is what he thinks of like Foucault does um is just insufferably patronizing um that you know that you have to work to see the value in something to see the value in something um and that at the same time um you can also assume that you know you should just read it uh and dismiss it offhand um, as not being of value in the same way that Tolstoy is. Um, that you have to understand something of the other culture to really see the value in it. Um, you know, which, and he says that, you know, basically broadens, you know, you know the horizon of what you see as valuable. Um, and there's a really one of the things I like about T. 
Taylor's, I, I think he's just, a, um, you know, his writing speak to a real just, like, uh, decency and, um, I don't know, like, a, a, a appreciation and respect for people. Um, and so one thing he says at the end, which I, I think kind of sums up this as an approach of how do we live in a multicultural society, is... Um, One could argue that it is reasonable to suppose that cultures that have provided the horizon of meaning for large numbers of human beings of diverse characters and temperaments over a long period of time, that have, in other words, articulated their sense of the good, the holy, the admirable, are almost certain to have something that deserves our admiration and respect, even if it is accompanied by much that we have to abhor and reject. Um, and, and so that, you know, that's the openness he talks about. Um, and so a different level of how do we, um, you know, how do governments treat different cultural groups is how do citizens living under those governments treat different cultural groups. And I think that's the kind of citizen ethic he's outlining here. In my personal experience, having done various international programs and, and, and studied with, with students from many places, I have found it odd, and, and I myself, I'm certain, have been guilty of this, that there, there is this attempt to sort of over-rationalize or instrumentalize or, or a weird way of understanding other cultural artifacts or tendencies and, and Taylor <laughs> lights into uh, Roger Kimball uh, a, a quote from Roger Kimball towards the end of this here but there a, a, another great line from Taylor that kind of gets to this if the only hope that other cultures have to produce our kind of uh, sorry, he, he says that if, if other cultures have to produce our kind of excellence, our, our culturally determined form of excellence, then obviously their only hope lies in, in the future. And there is, there is a weird, there's a weird sense in which American and more broadly Western culture considers itself very much monologic and um, self-generated. Doesn't see itself in dialogue with, with other Eastern cultures or other varying Western cultures for, for that matter. Uh, the, um, the chain of transmission from ancient Greeks ancient Greece to the uh, American founding is not nearly so neat or clear-cut as our history books or national mythology will, will make it. There, there's a lot of cultural back and forth and our own our own metrics most certainly aren't the best way to to measure all, all, all sorts of things, all sorts of cultural values. I, I, Russian literature is fantastic, but there are some things that I imagine 
Russian or, or Western mind just can't appreciate in, in the same way. And I think there are so many clear examples of how our culture in the in search for our narrow sense of, of greatness, of, of economic greatness, of a very certain sort of cultural greatness has, has destroyed or, or degenerated so many other things, which I, I don't... I don't want to play into a noble savage myth here. That That's not exactly it. But we have cultural blind spots of our own as individuals and as a society that that block out a lot. Well, right. I think partially this is a kind of uh, bastardized, I guess, Christian universalism, um, you know, which uh, the, the West is formed by Christianity um, you know, which is a basically evangelical religion um, that's supposed to be spread across the globe, um, you know, and is supposed to be accessible to all people in all places at all times, um, you know, who are all capable of being Christians. But then wrapped up into that, uh, you know, you get things like modern science and stuff, which is also wrapped up into something that's quote unquote Western or modern medicine or things like that that are given the same kind of universal uh, value in the sense that they would defeat all other kind of local values. Um, and I think what Taylor is saying is not that these things aren't valuable, uh, but that if we only think of something like enlightenment rationality and science as value as valuable then our horizon is very limited then we will never if that's all you can do you'll never be able to see the value in zulu culture or something and right by by saying if the zulus have produced a tolstoy you're a assuming they haven't and b that to do so to produce a novel that is that successful by our standards is basically to irreparably change and probably destroy Zulu culture, which it bears repeating, is very, very valuable to Zulu people. That you know, these are things that are valued by the people that are within them, and not just because they're valued by the people, but inherently have their own dignity. I, I think right. you're right, and I think we, um, I, I believe people are. This is uh, there's growing consensus among this, but. Uh, about this, but we certainly mistake our local particulars for universal values in, in fields of science and medicine and, and, and otherwise. We're, we're incapable of, of seeing some of the local elements of that. And yet again, I, I, I think your example of Christianity is really fascinating because, again, that isn't something that's... Uh, not, culturally monologic it's culturally very dialogic and we have that in the american context has been over assimilated in in all sorts of weird ways i i mean uh not not to make mention of uh, like non-denominational christians and such but the the roman catholic church has become largely a monolith in in, in the western perception and not many people are are aware or recognize of the great diversity 
in, in all elements uh, of the various Catholic churches uh, in the East, in the history of various Western churches. All of these have had, I mean, so much variation, so much difference, so much cultural identity that is unique and valuable. And there is uh, this difficulty of the politics of, of equality assimilating and, and, and getting rid of some of those cultural distinctions. Right. Well, and partially, not just of equality, but of recognition. You're, you're giving recognition to the value um, you know, in these cultures, even assuming you don't fully understand it. But the openness to finding the value um, is different from just saying, yeah, yeah, it's valuable, which is patronizing. Um, and I, I think to, to go back to um, you know, recognition, we've been talking a lot about between, um, mainly you know, between the West and non-Western cultures that are increasingly becoming part of the West because of global immigration and, and things like that. Um, but there's, a, there's one uh, you know, problem thing I've been thinking about um, you know, lately, which is very intra-Western. Um, I think you see it somewhat in Eastern Europe. Uh, you definitely see it here. Um, and disparagingly, people call it the Christian persecution complex. Um, now, I think partially this is a product of uh, American evangelical apocalypticism. Um, which is that the world's always two years from ending. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I think there's a sense from a great number of American Christians, um, you know, that they're somehow embattled um, by the Democratic Party, by the media, by, you know, universities, um, you name it, um, despite still wielding tremendous institutional power and uh, basically the entire American government with the exception of the House of Representatives, I guess. Um, so, you know, I guess part of my question is, you know, is this something that's legitimate? Um, is it real? Uh, or is it just a complex? And I think part of the answer to that, um, you know, could be that it's a recognition problem. And I don't mean by the government necessarily, but I don't think Taylor sees that the government is the only thing that can grant recognition. Talks about, you know, cultural institutions. Um, you know, how are members of this group portrayed in movies? Um, are they portrayed in movies? Um, you know, this was a big, um, you know, this was controversy over you know, the Oscars honoring people of color with acting awards um, or movies being made that starred with people of color, things like that. Um, and, and and so I think a, a better way of thinking about that and more work needs to be done with with this. I don't, I don't necessarily have an answer and it could be that it's a recognition problem, but it's entirely illegitimate and doesn't exist. Um, but not framing it in terms of political persecution persecution is even the right, right word political embattlement um, you know every election is a uh, fight for Christian civilization or something but uh, more as a recognition problem 
um, that, I don't know, happens along a very different axis, I think. Is this just intractable in a community that seeks equality? That this conflict between values of equality and fairness and values of liberty, individual identity are just always going to be at odds? I think so, except for probably in an entirely homogenous, you know, civilization, maybe. Even then, maybe not, because, I mean, I think Taylor would certainly say yes. And he also wouldn't say that the, it's not just that the values of, say, non-discrimination and equal treatment are in um, conflict with the politics of difference and recognition, but that within the politics of different recognition, there's a fight for which identities will get recognized. Um, so it's not just like, okay, we can throw, um, you know, just the equal bundle of rights and privileges out the window and recognize you all. That's not even possible. Um, and so part of the fight, you know, is over what identities are officially recognized. Um, and a lot of the, um, the, you know, civil rights pushes, um, in our day has been a a recognition problem. I mean, I think that's what the, um, the problem, you know, the debate over same sex marriage was, um, you know, was, you know, you are, um, you know, portraying us as in some way different or less than, uh, you know, marriage between a man and a woman. And so, um, but that I think part of the thing with, you know, modern, um, focus on identity, um, you know, that we're people who focus on our identities basically, um, is that you, you wonder if people, you know, if, if identity groups, new axes, and then is it just a matter of political prudence, which ones you recognize um, officially, uh, or, or, you know, how do you, how do you choose? Um, and it, I think it will be messy. Um, I don't think there's like a, this is not, a, this is not idealist political theory. Um, you know, this is, there are all of these competing goods um, and we have to think about them in the right way and then figure out how to balance them.